All right, thanks for joining us, everybody. We are here live from the KFVS Digital News Desk. David Yaskevich with us for Money Talks, the program where we discuss all your latest economic headlines, all the latest news that you need to know, informing your, your wallet and uh, money decisions with that big picture out there. David, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing well, Clayton. How are you today? Doing just fine, doing just fine. We are uh, looking forward, as always, here to Money Talks. And as we like to say, it um, not only helps us to uh, get a handle on everything money-wise in, in a nice and, uh, and peaceable way here to, to close out the week, but it is the sign of the closeout of the week. So we're, we're glad for that as well. Um, all of that in mind, looking then at uh, some of our latest money uh, topics, we've got several pieces of labor data, and among those is the JOLTS survey um, about uh, items such as job vacancies and hiring and firing. Can you tell us more about what we're learning from that particular item there? Yes, so that was uh, one piece of labor market information that came out this week that uh, was anticipated. And for the last several months to the last year, there's been a lot of talk about the ongoing labor shortage, and this would be a good report if we want to get some idea and some update on what that looks like. Um, you're not going to see big changes from month to month with the, the JOLTS or the Job Openings and Labor Turnover Survey, but it's really that change in that direction in which it's changing on that would give uh, the indicator we're looking for or it's giving you the information that would be more telling. Uh, probably the headline, if you looked at this week's JOLTS report would be there was a decline in job vacancies, although job vacancies, uh, not surprising, uh, job vacancies remain at high levels. So there was roughly a 400,000 uh, job decline in the number of job vacancies or declined by that amount. So that's a pretty sizable decline from one month to the next. But I would just point out, if you looked at prior months, there were pretty sizable increases in months before this past report, which by the way, this past report would have involved data from the last day of January. So that would give you some indicator on the time frame, but uh, somewhat sizable decline. Now keep in mind, if you see a decline in job openings, that could be because new people were hired. So, and those jobs are no longer open, they've been filled. So that could be a good news story, but it's a bad news story if we see uh, fewer openings because firms become more pessimistic about future economic activity. So you got to look a little bit deeper into the report. If you looked at the number of uh, separations from employment, that could come in two forms, uh, two broad forms at least. One form could be if we have voluntary separations, meaning someone quits. On the other hand, you could have involuntary separations where someone is let go from a job. Uh, overall, there was no real change in the number of separations, but there were divergent patterns in the quits vis-a-vis -vis the number of involuntary layoffs. So there was a slight decline by roughly 200,000 uh, employees, there was a slight decline in percentage terms in the number of voluntary quits, but there was about an equal magnitude in the number of involuntary separations. So while quits are down, it looks like there was a slight uptick in the number of layoffs for that sense. Now, the, the number I like to report when looking at the JOLTS data would be, if you look at the number of job openings, and then you look at the number of people who are unemployed, what is that ratio? What's the ratio of the number of jobs available 
per each person unemployed. If you do that calculation uh, at its at its highest in recent months or in the last year, it would have been around uh, a two to one ratio. It's close to that. It's about a one point eight. Uh, job vacancies for every one unemployed person. So that would be an indicator that there is a labor shortage where there seems to be a lot of vacancies versus the number of people who would be available, at least based on the measure of the number of unemployed. So still have a tight labor market. That's clear from this report. But uh, the good news would be there still remains a rather elevated or high number of job vacancies in the labor market. All right. With that... Um Monthly uh, monthly jobs report. Um, can we what do we what do we look at, at as far as uh, its strength and you know and that it comes is pretty unexpected in terms of those. What what do we see there? Right. So about a month ago, when the first Friday of January occurred, or February, I should say, first Friday of February, and we got the monthly jobs report for the month of January. There was a lot of headlines pointing to the unexpectedly high pace of job growth in the first month of this year, January. So the number that we would have got back reporting for January would have been 500,000 new jobs created. Then that's a large number. If you look before the pandemic, something between 180,000 to 200,000 jobs per month would be a good number. Now, keep in mind, uh, the labor market was in a much different position prior to the pandemic with a lot of people employed. Um, so, you know, take that in mind. But again, if you're looking at a, at a high number, uh, by any measure, pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, 500,000 new uh, payroll jobs would be a large increase in, in the number employed. Um, this week, or early, earlier today, we got the number for the month of January. And once again, I think the headline would say another unexpectedly high pace of job growth. This was a pretty good report, no matter how you look at it. So the number wasn't quite as high as 500,000 new jobs. It was roughly 300,000 new jobs. I think it was 311,000 new payroll jobs in the month of January. So that's a good number. Now, there might be something that sounds like a contradiction if you're not as familiar with the labor reports. Uh, technically, the unemployment rate did rise by uh, two-tenths of a percentage point. Now, the reason why that was the case, I'm going to argue that's still a good news story. A slightly higher unemployment rate still had a good news story behind it. The thing that caused that was there was roughly a 400,000-person increase in the labor force. So we just talked about the labor shortage a few moments ago with the JOLTS report. If you see an increase in labor force participation, that's that's how you address a, a labor shortage. So there was an increase in the number who were entering the labor force or re-entering the labor force, and that grew at a faster pace than employment. Now, here's a little technical or inside baseball terminology here. If someone were to go from not being a participant in the labor force and they start looking for a job again, but they just haven't found one, they would be considered unemployed if that were the case. They would go from being a non-participant in the labor force, which wouldn't affect the unemployment rate, to becoming someone who was unemployed. So because there was a faster pace or a heavier pace of people entering the labor force or re-entering it, that's kind of why we saw a slight increase in unemployment, despite seeing a rise in employment or, or the number of jobs. So. Uh, that's a good news story if you have 300,000 new payroll jobs and also 400,000 
people entering the labor force during a labor shortage. So that was a pretty good report. If anyone wanted to be stingy about this and say, yes, but there could be other signs of some potential weakness. Uh, the pace of average hourly earnings was pretty small. And if you look over the past year, that would have increased by 4.6%, which wouldn't quite match up with inflation. So if you have any naysayers, they might point to that. Also, you could point to the industries where the jobs were growing. And the industries where you're seeing the fastest pace of job growth would really be those that were the most impacted by the pandemic. So leisure and hospitality, retail, trade, and healthcare were kind of the largest private sector, uh, the, the, the industries that saw the largest private sector gains in employment in the month of February. So some might say that's just returning to, to normalcy, not necessarily an expanding uh, economy where new new jobs are being created. It's just regaining what was in the past. But uh, overall, that's a strong report based on the magnitude of job creation. So we'll celebrate those gains as we get them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so we were looking as well at uh, Jerome Powell uh, speaking earlier this week talking to uh, Congress and giving testimony there, um, talking about how the Fed is prepared to uh, speed up interest rate rises, and, and then we're looking as well at the market response to those things. Uh, what do we see there? What are the takeaways and, uh, and bits of information to, to, to pick up there? So before the news that came out this morning, it was a pretty big piece of news. There was a lot happening uh, in markets this week. Markets were kind of spooked a little bit. I'm not sure, maybe spooked isn't the right term, but markets reacted to the testimony that Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell gave this week. This week was the week where the Federal Reserve Chair gives the semi-annual monetary report to Congress, where the chair of the Fed, Jerome Powell, would talk about monetary policy and give an outlook on the economy and where he sees inflation and employment going with that dual mandate of price stability and full employment. So he spoke on Tuesday to the Senate Banking Committee, and then he spoke on Wednesday to the House Financial Services Committee. I would argue if you listen to past speeches by Jerome Powell, particularly the press conferences at uh, FOMC meetings, I think you'll hear a lot of similarities, at least if you compare what he said this week to what he said a m roughly a month ago at the, the last FOMC meeting at the beginning of February. And basically, a, a big story was we're in the early stages of disinflation. So we've had a year of uh, gradual interest rate hikes, and there are some signs that that's slowing economic activity. Now, we just talked about the labor market. That'd be one area where you're seeing the least uh, of an impact of the interest rates, I would argue. But if you look at inflation data, there clearly are some areas, some segments, and I really would emphasize that, some segments where you're seeing some impact of, of higher interest rates. So for example, there's been a gradual decline in the uh, annual rate of inflation uh, each month. So that'd be one thing I would point to. We'd like to see it a lot lower, because again, if you have a 6.4% annual unemployment, or an annual inflation rate of 6.4%, we just said a moment ago, if you compare that to the gain in average earnings of workers, uh, that the inflation rate is, is outpacing that, meaning real wages would go down. But if you notice the change from month to month, you are seeing inflation go down. The monthly numbers are nowhere near as high as they were. The month to month changes are nowhere near as high as they were at the last quarter of 2021 and the first half of 2022. So we're seeing some good progress there. But again, if you look at different segments, 
right now where inflation is the highest, it would include food, uh, and it would also include core services, which would be the, the, the prices on services uh, if you were to exclude energy services such as electricity or utilities. So as we would expect, if consumers are switching a lot of their expenditures away from tangible goods and more towards services, again, a, a return to normalcy from the pandemic, you're seeing some of the highest rates of inflation on product categories, really uh, on, on categories related to services. Where you do see some larger impacts of higher interest rates would have to do, or would be related to interest rate sensitive sectors, particularly with respect to automobiles and also with respect to housing, you're seeing much sharper declines in activities in those areas. And also, if you look at a segment of the consumer price index that looks at core goods, so this would be tangible products that would exclude food and it would also exclude energy, you've seen much larger declines in the rate of inflation from around 12% last year to something closer to 2% now for that one product category. Now, there's other product categories, and we should be concerned with that. Now, what really got markets moving this week, again, I would argue that what Jerome Powell said during his testimony was similar to prior speeches that he's given, but he put more emphasis, and this is what really moved markets. He gave more emphasis that if we continue to see stronger economic data like we did in the month of January for employment, for inflation, for retail sales, for other measures, if the numbers continue to come in stronger than expected, it's likely that the pace of interest rate increases and the duration of time at which interest rates would remain higher would likely pick up. So higher interest rate increases, meaning instead of a quarter percentage point increase at their next meeting later this month, it could be a half a percent increase or they maintain a higher level of federal funds uh, rate interest rates, uh, where instead of being at the high 5% range, it could be in the, the low 6% range. So that's kind of what moved markets this week. And uh, if we look at the employment data that came out today, the data would still lean toward the strong side. And that might be something that would encourage maybe a tighter approach, meaning higher interest rates or an increase at a faster pace for a longer period of time. All right. We're also getting news this week about a pretty seismic uh, shutdown, and that is with the, a, the Silicon Valley Bank um, having been closed by regulators. Can you tell us more about what's happening there the, and the uh, fallout of that? Is that that's pretty big, uh, pretty big impact there. Yes, that is quite concerning. When you look at the headlines, very sad story. Uh, but I will say up front, I don't think this is going to spread much at all to, throughout the banking system. So I don't think we're seeing anything like the financial crisis of 2008 or 2009. So that, that might be the, the silver lining in this cloud, but it's still a sad story. Uh, this is by, based on the number or based on the dollar amount of deposits at this bank. Uh, I read a report today that said this bank would have been roughly the 16th largest bank in the United States. Uh, so large bank by that sense, not the largest, but a large bank. And this would be the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. It would be the first one of its size since Washington Mutual uh, went bankrupt uh, in 2008. So this, this is a serious deal. Uh, but the reason why I'm saying I don't think it's really going to spread throughout the banking system, what should be known is the name of the bank, Silicon Valley Bank. And it kind of gives some 
uh, hint at to what the focus or the emphasis of this bank really involved. This bank is located out in Santa Clara, California, and they really specialize and emphasize customers who are in the tech sector and who or have uh, some in terms of businesses that are backed by venture capital firms. So they're looking at a lot of high risk, uh, innovative companies. And uh, that's kind of where the, their, their customer base is really emphasized. So those companies, their founders, their employees. And if we know something about what's been going on in the economy for the last few months, we talked about the strong labor market overall. But there's one sector in particular we hear a lot about large layoffs or, or mass layoffs, and that would have to do with the tech sector. So the tech sector has been going through some a pretty rough patch at the time. So a lot of uh, lost jobs, a lot of lost income, stock prices in the tech sector have taken a hit in the last year. So it's a rough time. So what happened to this Silicon Valley bank, which again is specialized primarily toward the tech sector, they've seen declines in their deposits. And when you're a bank, you have to have the funds available to pay out those deposits when a customer wants to withdraw them. So they've seen a decline in their deposits uh, as a result of that. In addition, uh, they've when, when you need to cover some of the liabilities related to your deposits, sometimes banks might sell off bonds that they hold. Now, we talked about interest rates. Interest rates have been rising uh, for the last year. And what happened here was that when they went to sell their bonds before the maturity date, they had to sell them at a lower price and it resulted in a, in a rather large loss in the assets to this Silicon Valley bank. And in addition to that, again, it's, it's kind of like a perfect storm that affected this company. They had, or they were the kind of the, the victims of, if you, I don't know if that's the best term, but uh, they, they experienced what's called a bank run. They, not only did they have a reduction in depositors, but what happened was some spread of fear or anxiety among other depositors that they might not get their money if they want to. So there was what would be called a bank run. More and more depositors wanted to take their money out of the bank. Uh, but when that happens, the bank has to have the funds available to pay for those withdrawals. And that basically caused the bank to go bankrupt in this case. So earlier today, the state regulator out of California uh, closed the bank down. And the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, basically took over the bank. So there is FDIC insurance up to $250,000. And the customers of the bank will get those funds or be able to get those funds this Monday. If a customer had more than $250,000 in the bank, well, then the bank could be liquidated later and they could uh, obtain the funds to pay those customers off in that, case, in that sense. So very sad situation. I mean, there's employees at this bank. There are depositors who could be waiting for their money. It's a sad situation. Uh, but I think it's more of a sign of what's happening in the tech sector what's happening in bond markets. I don't think it's so much an indication of what's have happening in the overall banking system. Because again, this was a rather uh, uh, concentrated firm when it came to their customer base. So there might be other banks out there on the West Coast that also specialize in the tech sector. Now, if that's the case, maybe they're facing something similar. But most people who are watching this program, your bank probably has a much more diversified base of customers and it's unlikely to spread to to other banks such as those. Very good to know. Very uh, important information when looking at this story. 
Um, and also, and maybe, maybe not at the same level of emergency, but still a story that may uh, cause some, some dismay is uh, the story of Girl Scout cookie shortages. Um, and so that, it, that is a, <laughs> what, what do we see as kind of the, the, main, the main cause of this, this, this problem? We always had money talks on a more lighter note, and uh, this, this, this story caught my eye this week. Uh, apparently, there was a new uh, flavor, a new brand of cookie from the Girl Scout cookies this year called Raspberry Rally, and that cookie uh, was only sold online, and it sold out. And there's been headlines in the last few weeks about resale markets for these Girl Scout cookies, and the resale market prices have been much higher than one would expect. So I don't know if this should shock us, but every now and then some wise guy sets a abnormally high price, maybe four or five times the value of something that something's true value um, on eBay or some other resale price, and that kind of is what's going on here. So uh, there's a shortage. They ran out of this new Raspberry Rally uh, cookie product, and uh, basically you're seeing on eBay, you're seeing prices for what would normally be 4 to $7. It could vary on your local uh, geographic area. Uh, in our region, I think it's more along the lines of $6. What you're seeing for those prices at the uh, – when you go to a, a troop uh, stand to purchase them or you go online to purchase them, uh, the similar products would be on eBay, particularly this, this brand that sold out. It would be on eBay for prices much, much higher than that. So I, I, I took a little look at eBay myself and looked at some of the prices on this Raspberry Rally cookie. Uh, you're looking at prices for a box in the uh, as low as maybe $15 and as high as $40 a box. Again, just because someone prices something on eBay, I wouldn't be too concerned. But in some of the news stories, and I, I was able to verify this, too, by looking on eBay, you could see bundles of 10 or 12 boxes for prices of, I don't know, $300, $400, which it's, it's kind of appalling to think of something like that because the, the outrage you're hearing on social media or the outrage you're hearing in some news stories would be uh, – you could spend that same money and it could contribute directly to the Girl Scouts. So there might be some uh, disappointment in those who are trying to sell these cookies online as substitutes for the other products that are still available where the money would go directly to the Girl Scouts. There's some disappointment in the people who would actually buy them at the higher price when they could buy cookies directly from the Girl Scouts, not on a resale website. And the money would contribute to the Girl Scouts. There was some disappointment in eBay for actually allowing these unauthorized sales of Girl Scout cookies to take place. Uh, eBay came out and said that these should be allowable on their website because it doesn't violate the uh, user policy that they have. So there's, there's a lot of conversation about that. Um, Again, I would just point out just because the price is above uh, normal levels, it doesn't mean they'll actually be sold. Anyone could set a price on a product on eBay. It might collect digital dust, but if they're abnormally high, I don't think it's really a, a credible price. Uh, but uh, I, I think you're, you might see some of them actually be sold in the resale market. So interesting story here. I think it's a public lesson in pricing where if the price is perhaps artificially too low, you would likely result in shortages. So there might not be anything really of a surprise there. So um, 
if prices are low, you kind of get shortages. If you get shortages, you see the products pop up on resale markets. Uh, we see this with concert tickets. We see this with tickets for sporting events. So I guess this is just a, another form of that. Uh, I, I will share one story. I was looking at some of the social media comments on this story, and uh, I thought one of them was funny. It was kind of a tongue-in-cheek comment, so I wouldn't take it too literally. I wouldn't take it literally at all. But someone was referring to the prices shown on eBay and was saying, well, if you look at what happened in the stock market this week, if you look at inflation, it might be a better investment to purchase Girl Scout cookies than stocks or hold on to cash. Again, tongue-in-cheek comment. I wouldn't take it too seriously. <laughs> but again, I would just warn, just because you see uh, stories of prices being set high, doesn't mean they're actually sold at those prices. So um, this is a good example of markets in action. And uh, if pricing isn't at the right level, you could see some interesting outcomes. All right. Yes, absolutely. That uh, that valuation, it's all tested and tried, and you have to see it on the other end of, of all that. Um, with, with all of that in mind, here we are at the end of the show. You want to give us uh, something as far as uh, what to look out for in the weeks to come? What are economists watching? Well, another round of data will take place next week before the next Federal Reserve meeting later this month. But next week, we'll get a new round of inflation data. So on Tuesday, we'll get the Consumer Price Index. And on Wednesday, the following day, we'll get the Producer Price Index. So we'll see what happens there. Um, last month, the annual rate of inflation was roughly 6.4%. So hopefully it goes down, but we'll have to see what happens there. We'll also get retail sales on Wednesday, which again, when we got a report one month ago for the month of January, uh, January's retail sales report was rather high. So we'll see whether that was a one-time blip upward or whether we're seeing that strength in consumer spending continue. Uh, also next week, we'll get on Thursday... You know, I like to look at earnings reports and hear what the companies have to say. FedEx, so what I would consider a true bellwether company, FedEx will report their quarterly earnings report. And in the last two quarters, they were kind of pessimistic about future uh, economic conditions. So we'll see what they've seen in the last quarter, so the last three months, and we'll see what they're projecting over the next year. And I, I think, obviously, one of the things on people's radar would be the Silicon Valley Bank fallout. And we'll see what... Uh, how that story unfolds next week. All right, David Yaskevich, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate you making the time. Oh, thank you as always. The pleasure was mine. To our audience as well, we appreciate you spending time here with us today, as always, here on the KFES Digital News Desk. You can check us out over uh, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, Roku, um, over our streaming here on the website, kfes12.com slash livestream. As well as on YouTube now, you can check us out there and follow us for more. Uh, as always, we'll be here for the 6 o'clock news just around the corner here in a, a moment or two.